You're listening to Go with Jamarla Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Today, we have the co-founder of Cross Culture Ventures, Marlon Nichols. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. All right, we're going to dive right in. There's been some talk here in Austin uh, at South by Southwest about this robot named Flippy. Flippy essentially is looking to disrupt folks who flip burgers. There's some political backlash about, you know, some of the investment flows out of Silicon Valley where you go into automation, artificial intelligence, robots, and you're going to impact a lot of low-wage workers, people of color. Do you believe VCs need to consider how the technology could likely impact society later on? Do you believe that that should be in the VC mandate to, to kind of look at that? I think it's within any creator's um, mandate to think about how whatever it is that you're creating affects society and the world that we live in. That said, you know, they're they're natural natural evolution, right? So there was a time where you had, take auto manufacturing for instance, where you had a lot of folks on those assembly lines putting those um, cars together. Now that's primarily robots. Flippy doesn't sound much different to me than that. Um, So I think it's, you know, yes, we want to be responsible. Um, Yes, we want to make sure that what we're building is actually good for the environment and good for society. But we also don't want to um, slow progress and um, and efficiencies and things like that. And it sounds like I haven't I haven't met Flippy. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, but if, if, so, if, if, if a black founder came to you yeah. and said, "Look, I'm looking to, to create a robot that's going to flip burgers, and you know, billion dollar opportunity with this technology," are you taking a look at that, uh, considering that you know it could displace a lot of workers? And, you know, in terms of with the view that hey, it's more about kind of progress, those workers are going to be all right. It's going to figure itself out. I mean, that's like saying investors shouldn't look at autonomous vehicles, for instance, right? Because uh, theoretically, a lot of um, Uber and Lyft drivers um, may go out of business. Um, I think we're, we're a ways from that. Um, and I think there will, there will still be pockets of, um, of drivers. And I think what usually happens is there are other types of jobs that are created um, as a result of this technology. And so it's, it's, it's also, also incumbent upon the, um, you know, the, the consumers as well as the um, workers to figure out you know, what's, what's next, what kind of training do I, do I need, and, and things like that. And so you know, I'll plug one of our companies real quickly, a company called Catalyte, based out of Baltimore. And they're essentially um, a tech consultancy. But what they're doing is they're changing the face of, um, of software engineering. Right? And they're doing this by recruiting from Craigslist and community colleges as opposed to the MITs and the Stanford, Stanford's of the world. And they're leveraging artificial intelligence to, um, and they, they give uh, basically an aptitude test that says, you know, can, are you going to be, Jamarlin, are you going to be a good coder? Do you have the aptitude for this? Um, and if yes, they train you for six months and then hire you. So I think, you know, instead of complaining about, you know, Flippy and those jobs going away, we got to focus on what's, gonna, what's the next opportunity, how do I get trained up to do that, and how do I, you know, put my family in another, in the next tax bracket up as, you know, as a result of this. A young white girl, you know, received millions of dollars uh, of investment, or, or, or this company, that the ad showed a, a white girl in the ad, but this company, their innovation is bodega in a box. And I know you're from uh, uh, New York, uh, you could appreciate a good bodega. Uh, but a lot of people on Twitter, social media, they gave this company a really hard time because they feel like, man, you know, these investors, these venture capitalists out of Silicon Valley, they're investing in things that are essentially, essentially for, for the people in the community, they're going to be weaponized and kind of undermine their, you know, their own business interests in the hood and, and, and kind of in certain uh, communities of color. Um, did, did you see that? In yeah. The press? yeah. We actually, um, we released, uh, I think it was in December, we released a report uh, called The State of Culture, Culture as Currency. And we actually talked about uh, this very company. 
And <clears throat> it's not that where they went wrong um, it was their approach, right? Um, they weren't, they weren't actually familiar with the communities where these um, bodegas exist and the benefits that, um, that, that they provide to the, the folks living there. And so their technology completely ignored all of the social, um, the, the social cues and the important aspects of it. It's one thing to say, hey, we're going to put essentially vending machines on every, every corner so that you don't have to go into this, um, you know, into this store and have these interactions. But there are a ton of other things that, that are just part of the community. They didn't consider that. Also, a, a lot of the stuff that you buy from a bodega is like eggs, milk, like perishable goods that can't live in a, um, in a vending machine for, for, for that long. And, and, and then it's just the human interaction around it too. Like you'll have um, you know, a group standing outside in front of the bodega hanging out, like that's their spot, right? That's, it's just like community building. And they ignored all of that and just said, hey, we wanna close, we wanna, we wanna shut down all bodegas. And that's, you know, for that community, that's not something that they, that they wanted to hear or that they were gonna embrace. For the, the vanilla institutional VC firm uh, out of Silicon Valley, do you think it would have mattered, though, uh, if they actually studied the potential impact on, you know, communities where, you know, bodegas are treasured? Would it matter if they, you know, even if they did study it, the impact in terms of versus the, the profit incentive, like, hey, this is a big opportunity? But it's you can't have one without the other is the point, right? They didn't they didn't understand it. And if, um, if they understood it, they'd see that this thing can't be profitable in these communities. Yeah. This is, gonna, this is gonna be a negative thing in these communities. So no one wants to invest in a losing proposition. And the way that they went with this, it proved to be a losing proposition. If it was a profitable proposition, a big commercial opportunity, and they studied it and it had a big impact, you wouldn't see any, any, any issue with that. Coal, oil, gas, these are all examples of, you know, things that are harmful to our environment. And, you know, they're multi-billion dollar industries, or at least they were at, at one point. So someone's going to invest. Someone's going to make money off of it if they can. So if it was a profitable opportunity and it had a, a net negative impact on the community, would you invest? Well, no, because uh, we take a different approach. Yeah. Right? We, we actually care about how our investments impact the world, essentially. It's a part of, it's just a part of our ethos, but we're not every fund. Okay, tell us about your story up until uh, you started as a VC at Intel. Yeah, uh, so I did my undergraduate studies at Northeastern. I studied management information systems, and leaving Northeastern, I was fortunate enough to land at a um, startup. It was an enterprise um, software company called Frictionless Commerce, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I joined them um, to basically lead global implementations of their software. And within a year of that, um, we started seeing a lot of traction in Europe. And so one of the co-founders just tapped me one day and said, hey, I'm moving to London because there's so much business in Europe. We need an office there. You want to go? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Never lived in London before or um, you know, anywhere close to Europe. And, um, it just sounded like a great opportunity, so I did it. And it was great because, you know, while I was maybe employee number 12 or something like that at, at Frictionless, and in London, you know, it was like I was a co-founder because you had to do everything from sales, pre-sales, customer support, all of it, growing that business. Um, and ultimately, the company was, um, was purchased by SAP, and, and I, I left England and moved back to the U.S., to, um, to Harlem, actually. And what I, you know, the thing that I learned from that experience was that, you know, while I love technology, I don't love operating a, the same company for, you know, three years or, you know, some, some long stretch of time. That just wasn't me. I felt like I needed more breath. And so I chose consulting after that. Um, first, it was like management consulting, and the Blackstone Group was my first client, and you know it was their real estate division. So I was helping them uh, create shared services organizations and basically putting together everything that needed to be in place once they bought a few entities and needed to run them before they you know before they sold them. 
And that went, that went really well for a while, and I got tapped again. The consulting firm I was with wanted to create a strategy practice around media and entertainment. And so I got the chance to go and launch that practice. And so worked with like McGraw-Hill and, um, and uh, what was it, Warner Music, um, helping them figure out, you know, how do they leverage the internet to, you know, for the benefit of their business. And so that, while that was fun, I learned something else about myself, and it was that I need to be more engaged in kind of the, the implementation. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to operate a company for a long period of time, but I wanted to have some exposure to operations. And so then I started thinking, okay, well, you know, what is, um, what is the profession that could, you know, that, that fits that, right? Where I could um, interact with, you know, executive level folks um, I could be a part of uh, operational strategy conversations. I could be um, have a vested, a true vested interest in the outcome, and I would be a part of um, cutting edge technology. And so for me, that was venture capital. And so there I was sitting, and I was like, "How do I get into this thing?" Two things: I needed to get a better grasp on finance, and I needed to build a network in the space. And so for me, that meant go back to business school, and landed at at Cornell. I was fortunate in that Cornell has a MBA-led um, pre-seed fund that I had the opportunity to lead while I was there, and that kind of catapulted me into a career at Intel Capital. How many black VCs do you know have more experience than you in, in terms of that are, that are kind of active right now? That's, that's kind of a relative question, right? It's because... Are we talking like direct investing experience? Or, yeah. Because yeah, operating experience matters too. Yeah. So direct investing, been maybe doing it longer than me, maybe Charles Hudson. Um, Just a few, right? one that I could think of, yeah. Um, there, was a, there was an all-black uh, venture fund, I think, out of like, I want to say Philly or something like that, years ago. Uh, those guys have been doing it for a while. But yeah, I'd probably Charles. What are the top two lessons you learned uh, working at Intel as a VC? Um, I think it's the lessons you learn at every big company. You're never going to completely get to do what you want to do. And there's going to be a, a lot of bureaucracy, so you learn how to um, navigate that uh, to, you know, to make a, a space for yourself that you feel comfortable in. Uh, those are probably the, the two biggest things. You know, you're, you're running your own fund now. Uh, what is the size uh, of your fund? So we're a sub $50 million fund. Um, we've got 20, we're three years old now. Uh, we've got 20 companies in the portfolio, and we'll make another 14 to 17 um, investments before, before we um, finish out fund one. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and what's the minimum check size, uh, which you expect for your next fund? We're still having that conversation internally now. We're, we're probably not back out on the market for, you know, probably until the end of this year. So we're having those, those kind of strategy conversations now. I know what we, what we do know is that um, right now our sweet spot in terms of the checks that we, we write is anywhere between 125K and 250K. And, you know, we, are, we have up to a million in some companies. Um, but what we'd like to be able to do for this next fund is to, for our sweet spot to be 500K to a million and then um, all in into a company 1.5, maybe two. And so it's kind of, you know, backing into the bigger number of how, you know, how large the fund should be, how many investors we want. And, you know, then we'll figure out, you know, what, what's the smallest check size we'll, we'll take. Can you tell our audience uh, who Troy Carter is and how you met him and developed a, a business relationship with him? It's my brother. Um, so I met Troy um, as I was developing the concept for this fund. Um, I went and I sat down with uh, you know, two people that I respect in, in a major way that I thought could help me um, think about the, the fund as well as potentially become investors in it. And that was uh, Mitch and Frida Kapoor, Kapoor Capital. And um, they loved the, the concept of, of the fund. And um, like I said, I've known them for many years and you know they they believed and wanted to back me but what they said is you know we've done we've done a number of deals and have a, a pretty good relationship with this guy Troy Carter down in LA at the time I was living in Silicon Valley and um, and we think that this would really resonate with him 
And so they set up the meeting, flew down, and, and met with them. And that meeting was, was really supposed to be about um, him becoming an investor in the fund. And so we had that conversation, which he said no to. Um, he was doing direct investments um, off of his company's balance sheet, um, Adam Factory. And so it didn't really make sense for him to take that money and, and give it to someone else to, to invest for him. So, so he said no. Um, but we kept in touch. And one day he reached out and he said, you know, I, I can't get this out of, my, out of my head. It's really interesting. And I feel like we should figure out a way to do it together. Um, so then we started the conversation of, you know, how do we build a fund together? Um, what does it look like? And that was about a, you know, a six to eight month process. Um, and then we, then we put pen to paper and, and started raising money. But, um, but Troy's a, a famous music manager, um, uh, or he was, um, credited for, you know, helping launch the careers of like Lady Gaga, John Legend, Megan Trainer, and a number of other folks. And um, through working with some of those folks, he got introduced to technology and, um, and fell in love with it and started investing. Um, so, you know, he's an early investor in companies like, you know, Uber, Lyft, Spotify, Warby Parker, uh, Dropbox, a lot of the, you know, kind of brand name companies from a Silicon Valley perspective. That's, yeah, so that's who, that's who Troy is. And then, um, you know, as he was working with those companies as an advisor, you know, kind of built a reputation of being someone that could, that is knowledgeable, particularly in the arena of marketing and storytelling. Um, and so more and more opportunities came to him as a result of that. Um, and he, you know, his company, The Atom Factory, um, grew into more than just a talent management agency. It became a talent management agency and an angel investment kind of entity. And so, yeah, today it's, it, it feels more, Atom Factory feels more like a, a holding company and he's doing some things with um, Prince's estate and, and stuff like that. Um, and we, we do all the investing or the, the lion's share of the investing out of Cross Culture, the fund. Does he still have a commercial relationship with Spotify? Yeah, and that grew out of his, um, that grew out of his uh, relationship with them as an advisor, an early investor. He'd been helping them for, for years. Um, and... I think it was about maybe a year ago or something like that. Um, CEO reached out and said, "Hey, we, we really need you to spend more time with us, um, and it would be great if you took on this title." So he's the head of creator services there, and um, essentially what what his group does is figure out, you know, what can Spotify do better in terms of working um, directly with with artists um, and the ecosystem around those artists to to create more value um, for them. So that's what um, kind of his team thinks about. So, you know, he does um, a lot of work there, and then, he, you know, he's passionate about investing in technology, so um, then he does a lot of work with, with um, my team on, on that side, on the venture side. If you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, you can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. Does your portfolio have any exposure to companies leveraging the blockchain? No, we haven't made any um, blockchain-centric uh, investments yet. Um, part of it is... is Trigger shy. Part of it is just um, not having done enough research in it. We're we're talking to a couple of them now and getting smarter on the space. Um, it's a volatile space, especially when you when you um, think about the currencies. Um, so it's just a lot to think about, a lot to learn there. Um, it's interesting. I don't think it's it's going away, but I'm not sure yet what it ultimately will be. Could you see cross-culture uh, ventures uh, coming out with your own token, making kind of investments and liquidity easier uh, for you know investors out there? Where essentially, can you can you envision cross-culture uh, ventures having a, a token, a security token, uh, and where it's trading and investors could have liquidity? No, <laughs> not no. To, not today. No. Yeah, no, it's not not even something that we've given thought to. When you pitch uh, potential investors in your fund, uh, what are the top two reasons they tell you no? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, you're ex- based on your experience. Like, you know, if you had to say, you know, things kind of come up. Just don't get it. Um, yeah. I think is the, 
and don't get it, and or um, this is just a little bit too different than than everything else, right? It, you, yeah, can you talk about your theme in terms of what they don't get about your 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 your, your theme that you're investing in in terms of cultural changes and arbitraging that? I can't speak for someone else as to why they don't understand it. Um, our thesis is cultural investing, and for us, what that means is um, studying popular culture to uh, get to what's driving consumer behavior, and then ultimately predicting. What consume, where consumers are going to spend their capital in the future. And a lot of um, you know, diverse communities typically drive global culture. It starts from a smaller place, but it bubbles up, and it becomes popular culture. So we do a lot of studying um, you know, in diverse communities and things like that. And um, so maybe an you know, LP, potential LP, doesn't necessarily understand that. Um, or it's just, you know, it's, it's a new concept and, you know, they'd rather, you know, kind of be more risk averse and sit it out and see how this one goes um, and, then, and then, you know, then come in. Because I, I think in, in general, right, uh, money managers tend to be, tend to try to mitigate risk as much as possible, right? Like you don't want to lose your client's money, right? Uh, so... So you try to take as much risk out of it as possible. And, this, and here you have something new. You have a team that doesn't look like every other team that, um, that you've invested in, in in this space. So, you know, these flags are going off. Maybe uh, not, you know, not necessarily warranted, but they're going off. Um, and, you know, they, take the, they make the safe, the safe decision, which is to, to say no. That said... Um, we have a lot of LPs that, that said yes. I mentioned um, Alphabet, um, who's now you know, transferring over to Plexo Capital with Low Tony, the you know, Kippur Foundation, Condé Nast, um, Calvert Investments, um, Pi Investments, which is a, a, an organization that, or they changed their name to Candide, which manages a couple of Pritzker family offices. So we have a, we have a nice um, WTI. We have a nice uh, group of, of investors, ranging from institutions to family offices, corporations, and high net worth individuals. So a lot of people got it, right? Um, but some some didn't. Uh, maybe they will in the future. Maybe they won't. But not something I can really spend time on. I totally get focusing on the positive. You have some great names uh, backing you. Uh, have Have you left a meeting feeling like? hey, part of this no is black. I'm coming in black. I don't see a lot of black guys like Marlon, uh, and it makes it maybe a little bit more risky. Have you ever felt that way leaving a meeting? You know what? Um, before we took any, like, sat down for any meeting, they saw a, they saw a pitch deck, right? And our pitches are, are front and center. So if the main reservation was, um, you know, these guys are black, then maybe we wouldn't be in, in the room for that meeting, right? So I, I don't know. Um, and again, I can't, it doesn't help me to spend time focusing, stuff, focusing on things that I can't control. So I focus on the things that I can control, which is, you know, building a, a, a kick-ass team, um, investing in companies that perform really well and generating returns for our investors. That's all I care about. But you haven't thought about it, like, Hey, you know what's up with this in terms of some feedback you received or anything like that? There was one. Um, there was one uh, conversation we had with an investor, and um, his comment to us was, "I like you guys, um, and I know you're capable, but I want to know that you're going to invest. You know, keep investing in Lyfts and Ubers and Spotify's, and not necessarily, um, you know, black founders." And so. You know, we kind of looked at each other and was like, "Does that imply that a black founder can't create a billion-dollar, billion-dollar company?" And so, you know, the response was that, "No, we're we're looking for the best founders focused on, you know, opportunities that we deem as you know multi-billion-dollar opportunities, and they're bringing uh, a differentiated approach to it." Period. But that was the only kind of overt. I guess, question around our thesis and, you know, our, again, going back to our ethos, it's, it's like investing should be bias-free, 
right? You should, you should be investing based on, on talent, vision, and experience. And all of that other stuff, you know, is, is bullshit, frankly. The founders that are listening, you know, what would be your top three checklists in terms of, hey, you need to have your game tight in these three areas before even considering stepping to me? I would phrase it a little bit differently. So the, the three things that are most important to us is the, is the opportunity. Is this a really big opportunity? You know, not a you know, mom and pop type opportunity. Like, can this be a multi-billion dollar company? Can this be a publicly traded company? Period. Is there is there a route to get there? And then it's well, okay. Well, what does the competitive landscape look like, and how are you different? What is it? What is it about your approach, your technology, whatever, that's going to give you an advantage that lasts for um, a long enough period of time where this can become a very unique and big company before others kind of pile on? And then, and this is probably the most important thing: is who's doing it. Right? Who's the, who's the entrepreneur? What does the team look like? And are you actually capable? And do I believe that you have the ability to do this? Because you can have, you can have an incredible idea, and um, and a very weak founder, and you know this this thing goes to zero very quick because it was poorly managed, right? And on the flip side, you can have a, an incredible um, founder that changes the direction of a business because he or she realizes that the potential that they, they, they initially saw here is not here. And now you can have a great, op- a great outcome. So at the end of the day, we're, we're founder-centric. It's gonna be about the, the people, especially at, at the early stage of investment where the opportunity can change four, five, 10 times before it actually becomes a, a big company. Have you had uh, any discussions with uh, any endowments or pension funds uh, coming in? No, um, I think we had, you know, maybe a, a couple of kind of informal conversations, um, you know, in and around our, our network. But the reason we didn't really focus on them is, like I said, we're a sub $50 million fund. So, you know, they need to deploy larger checks. Um, and in, in many cases, they can't um, or won't be more than 10% of your fund. Right. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to write a um, they, you know, they need to write like a 10 million dollar check. Right. And so sub 50 do the math. Right. It doesn't doesn't work. So we didn't focus. We didn't focus on them. And then also, you know, um, there's a, a reputation there of not really having a, a, an appetite to invest in first time funds, um, you know, for those pension funds or whatever those large funds that you described, investing in first time funds. They want to see. You know, their job is they want to make their job as easy as possible. The statistic that uh, less than one percent of the VC dollars going to uh, black founders, would you hold the endowments and pension funds accountable in terms of, you know, what's supporting that horrendous stat? I think you got to hold the entire ecosystem accountable. It, it is the, the limited partners. Right. So those institutions that you mentioned, making sure that they're funneling money into into funds that will actually invest in, um, in, you know, in those types of founders or invest without um, racial bias, then, you, then it's, the, it's also the, the fund managers, uh, the GPs, right? They also have a responsibility to at least understand your bias and, and, and make an effort to, to make decisions, you know, despite or in spite of that bias. Then you also have entrepreneurs, um, you know, some of which are building incredible companies and deserve to be funded, and some that are not building such great companies and do not deserve to be funded. Everyone in the ecosystem. Um, you got banks, right? So sometimes these startups need, need loans um, before they're ready to, to get um, venture financing. If, they're, if, it's, you know, if there's an, an asset that they can leverage for that, banks have to be willing to, to do that too so they can get to a point where it makes sense for an institutional investor to, to participate. The actual um, the community is another one. Um, so what is what is often missing from um, you know black and brown uh, startups is that friends and family round you know those those high net worths in your community that can um, you know collectively contribute that first million dollars. To, um, to get this idea into a product and start to you know, show some traction. 
So I, I think it's, um, if it was a simple problem, um, it would have been fixed a long time ago. It's hard. And, and we all have a responsibility and just need to step up. What percentage of your first fund, dollar for dollar, are black dollars, black folks investing in you? It's small. Small. Yeah, really small. Yeah. I, I, I can't give you a percentage, but mm, maybe less than 10%. And if, if the needle's going to move on that statistic, I get it. Like, there's a lot of things going on, very complex. Where should the focus be? If we had to prioritize one thing in terms of attacking this issue, what, what would you give the highest priority to? Give cross-culture all that money. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, one, there's 1% of, um, or it's somewhere between 1% and 2%. Of um, black GPs make up one to two percent of um, you know venture capital, and then that statistic car- carries forward when you think looking at um, black and brown founders that are being funded. You know, I, I think there's a relationship there, right? So it makes to me it would make sense to fund not only black and brown GPs, but GPs that are of the mindset that there's value in looking at challenges within those black and brown communities. So making sure that you're, you know, the, the dollars are going to the folks that actually want to um, have an impact, not for the sake of having the impact, um, but for the sake of recognizing that there's a big opportunity here and we need to be playing there. You mentioned an endowment, a big, a big endowment, I'm talking like a Harvard, a Yale, a Princeton. They need to write a really big check and that may not make sense for you. But what about subscale endowments where, you know, for example, Howard, Morehouse, Spellman, you throw them together in aggregate, uh, the endowments are about 800 million. Should they be writing you a check or getting exposure to this asset class? I think everyone should be writing us a check. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. just, <laughs> just to yeah. be 100. Um, but yeah, you know, I think with, with them, it's like, um, again, it's, it's risk mitigation and, and risk tolerance, right? And venture is a risky asset class. I think on, you know, largely. And illiquid. The, the, yeah, yeah, you know, seven to 10 years probably, yeah. right? Before you see um, liquidity. And, and in addition to that, the, you know, as a, as a group, as an asset class, it, the, it's an, the returns are negative. You know, somebody say scary money don't make money, right? <laughs> yeah. And, so. and, you know, so if, if they're going to, to take a risk or the risk on, on venture capital, I would prefer it be with a fund like ours. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> if you look at Howard's uh, asset allocation in 2016, uh, it looked like uh, less than 1% was in uh, private equity. And, you know, the, the, the endowment is over $500 million. Uh, Howard's. Is it fair to say that, hey, if, if the best and largest HBCUs are not in these tech streets talking to people like you, investing in a lot of black founders, why would the black community go to Silicon Valley and complain uh, about not getting checks? You know, the Harvard endowment or, or, or pension funds, when the HBCUs, they won't even nibble on, on, on kind of private tech deals. Do you have a similar stat for um, for the Harvards and Stanfords and what they? Uh, yeah, so you know most of these universities now are looking to replicate David Swinson out of Yale, and they call it the Yale model. They put a premium on illiquid assets. They believe, hey, if you're going to have an outsized performance on your asset allocation, most of that outperformance is probably going to come uh, from an illiquid asset class: uh, hedge funds, private equity, venture capital. Uh, they're heavy getting exposures there. Dave Swinson, you know, he credits a lot of the alpha from getting access to the best managers and private equity. And mm-hmm. it seems like the HBCU portfolio strategy is inverse of what everybody else is trying to do. I'm not saying that they should be copying, but it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I get it that times are harder. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, disruption in the um, the, the academic uh, endowment environment, but what about the 90s and the 2000s? It just seems like uh, the investment strategies are, are, are not where they need to be. Uh, I feel like somebody needs to be at a place like this, talking of, you know, to founders uh, about opportunities. I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for you. Um, what I will say, though, is that private equity is a, um, it's a big space, right? I would love to better understand 
what percentage of that is like real estate or energy versus venture capital, right? Or even buyouts and, and things like that. I don't, I don't have a I don't have a great answer for you. I, I think if it were me um, and I were running an endowment, um, I think I'd want to protect the, the capital because obviously a university kind of needs that in order to provide value um, to its constituents. But I'd also be looking to grow it, and I it's not my space. So I can't, you know, I can't say, you know, this is a wrong strategy. But if if there are clear examples out there of a strategy that's a bit different from yours and it's working, it might make sense to um, at least dip your toe in the water and see if you can make that strategy work for you. Yeah, it it definitely seems that your thesis at Cross Culture uh, is very relevant to HBCU endowments developing a competitive advantage where they're close to the black founders, right? The graduates of the institutions where they can develop relationships and deal flow and develop a competitive advantage with this specific market. So, you know, do you think that's a big opportunity uh, from a competitive standpoint versus other universities to really kind of have superior connectivity to the black tech segment? If we're talking about, you know, endowments, they're not going to invest directly into companies. They're going to invest into managers that would direct, you know, invest directly into companies. So I think, I think there's an interesting um, value proposition uh, for students that could be created here. Um, because I think if you're, if you're an investor in a fund, um, you know, I, I'm going to answer the phone when you call me and tell me that, you know, and request that I take a meeting with a student that's creating this, this novel idea. Like, I'm going to do that. Um, so I think it's, it could be an incredible value proposition um, for them to the students. Um, but again, they're not going to be picking the, um, the, the companies directly that, that get the investment. So they're, they're, they're going to be a step removed from that. Uh, I would challenge you in saying that, you know, obviously you need a lot of skill uh, uh, to, to have this expertise in-house. But... You know, a Howard, uh, a Spellman, why couldn't they bring in, in-house, their own Marlin? So they, and, 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 there's and, only one Marlin. Um, <laughs> right? yeah. But no, I, I mean, sure, you can, you can try to create a venture fund. I mean, <clears throat> I come from, you know, a corporate venture firm, right? Um, Intel Capital is where I really learned, um, learned investing. And... At the time, it was, you know, the largest, the most active um, corporate VC in, in the world. And then, you know, shortly after I joined them, you started seeing, like, this pouring out of, um, of corporate VCs trying to, to model what, what they did. But the DNA wasn't there. Um, they, uh, they couldn't exactly replicate um, the approach. And it's harder, you know, it sounds easier to do than it, than it actually is. Um, but they could hire, um, you know, a team and say, hey, here's, you know, X million dollars, go invest in directly in companies. But then the other thing is like, when you invest in a fund, your, um, your exposure is across a number, a portfolio. Of, of companies. When you invest directly in a company, your exposure is in that company, right? So as, as an endowment, I would think that you'd want to, it's a, it's a, and we talk about risk a lot in this conversation, it's a way to um, kind of de-risk or mitigate the risk um, associated with venture. Yeah, I'm assuming if they're investing out uh, directly in the endowment that they're spreading their bets though. Uh, they're, in terms of percentage terms, they're not going to be too concentrated, and, and of course, they're going to build out their own portfolio. Sure, but again, um, that requires a team, right? So if you're going to distribute your focus like that, you're going to need people that understand each of these places or areas that you're going to um, be planning to deploy capital. If and you're out there uh, right now and you're, you're active with your alumni at Howard, at Morehouse, or Spelman, get the word out about Marlon Nichols and cross-culture ventures is that we need to establish better connectivity in the community between what's going on in black tech 
and how we're managing our endowments. There needs to be some connection. Uh, and we're not saying, hey, you know, put 5% of the endowment in private tech companies, but we need to at least have some conversations uh, here. Peter Thiel, he's on the board of Facebook. He gave Mark Zuckerberg 500,000, so he's been riding with him from very early on. But Peter Thiel also wrote a book attacking multiculturalism and affirmative action uh, while he was a student at Stanford. You know, he's a big time Trump supporter. How do you view personally Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook backing a guy like that, or, or, or you know, Facebook is a very influential uh, enterprise. How do you feel about, you know, Peter Thiel being on Facebook's board? If I'm honest, I, I don't really have an opinion because I'm not an investor in Facebook um, and I'm not an operator within that, that company. You know, Peter Thiel has shown that he is a, he's a smart guy. He's a capable um, business person. Um, he has, um, I don't know all, all of his opinions, but um, based on what you just said, he clearly has some opinions that differ from mine. But I feel like in order to, in order to move the needle forward, we've got to be able to listen to all opinions, tolerate them, um, have the conversation, and get to the outcomes that we want. Can Facebook say they're committed to diversity and be a big supporter of Peter Thiel and have Peter Thiel on your board. Do, do the, each member on your board, should it kind of sync with how you think about diversity? It would be great if that was, if that was the case, but that, frankly, that's not the world that we live in. You know, my hope is that that board is able to have these candid conversations, right? Um, his, his views, they're coming from somewhere like I said, I don't necessarily agree with them, but they're coming from somewhere. So it's, if you don't have the conversation, you don't know where those views are coming from and you can't start to affect change if you don't understand the origins of the other person's perspective. So I think there can be some, some benefit there. Would I, would I love for everyone in this world to um, embrace diversity and see the value that it brings? Yes, of course, um, but that's not the world that we live in. And, I'm not here to tell um, some other executive how to run their how to run their firm and who to put around them. If one of your founders uh, within your portfolio wanted to bring on Peter Thiel as a board member and they went, they consulted you, would you kind of hey that his his values his, his his politics put that to the side? This guy is really smart. Would you mentor that black founder that hey Peter Thiel that's that's a good bet there? So. We invest in founders to run their companies, right? And I'm, once I make that investment, I'm, I'm trusting you to do um, what you believe is the best, is in the best interest of your company. So if, if that decision was made, I know that it was, it was done in a very thoughtful- But this founder is coming to you for mentorship. Hey, what should I do? This guy's super smart, has a lot of connections. Uh, however, he has this other baggage. That's way too hypothetical for me to answer. Man, this show is called Go Hard or Go Home, man. You got to answer that. It's <laughs> too hypothetical. I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's so many, so many uh, unknown variables that, that, that could be at play. I, I don't know. I can't answer that. You wouldn't answer that to one of your founder CEOs? If one of my you founders and CEOs and he's struggling with that. wanted to talk to me about that, then we would definitely talk about it. But then it would be a very real situation. It would be a, a, a real example where we would know all the variables at play and I can actually provide counsel. Right now you're asking me to throw out some, some advice for a situation that I don't know 99.9% of what the variables are. I you know and who I Peter Dill that. is though. That's the one, that's the yeah. one, that's the one variable that, that we do know. Yeah. Um, everything else, I don't know anything about it. Fox News journalist Laura Ingram criticized LeBron for speaking out on political issues, attacking Trump. Uh, in so many words, she said, hey, you know, you're a multimillionaire, super successful, just shut up and dribble. You know, we don't want to hear your political uh, views and we don't want to hear you, you know, criticizing Trump. Do you feel that you have a lot of people in influential positions in tech, Silicon Valley, who are shutting up and dribbling due to economic insecurity? A lot of folks are, you know, talking about 
diversity, complaining about diversity, uh, but they're not calling out any names. Like they're not really, hey, Mark Zuckerberg, hey, Facebook, uh, hey, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, uh, hey, John Doerr, hey, Michael Moritz. Uh, so there's like this diversity boogeyman who's creating these problems, who are discriminating, but there's no real institutions or people I want to attach this criticism to. But have you seen instances where people are shutting up and dribbling? I'm sure. Um, that said, I, I don't know that that statement was 100% accurate. I think um, we're, in a, we're in a special time right now where um, we, we're calling it the, the conscious consumer is, you know, is alive. And they're using buying power and their social reach to hold some of these individuals accountable. So there's a reason why Facebook is making changes to, to its platform. That's because the public is saying this has to change. There's a reason why, you know, um, Uber, you know, kind of changed its stance on um, on on immigration, and and on um, you know uh, the issues that they were having around um, ethnicity and gender uh, equality and stuff like that. So. I don't think it's true that, that these companies and, and individuals are no longer being held accountable. I think that's starting to happen and we're seeing it more and more. Do I think that you know, there are some, some people that do shut up and dribble? Sure. I'm a big sports guy. Michael Jordan for you know, 100% of his playing career shut up and dribbled. All right? um, LeBron's a little bit uh, different. He's very vocal. And a lot different, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, even, even Kobe. Kobe didn't um, talk much about um, political issues while, while he was playing. He's much more vocal now. Some people, um, you know, calculate risk and say, hey, I can maybe do this in, in another way. Or maybe um, I just don't want to do this. Would you connect HBCUs not getting more aggressive on venture capital, private equity, over the years where, hey, I'm just gonna be risk adverse, uh, you know, I don't wanna blow up, you know, the endowment or underperform. Folks in leadership positions, uh, in a position of influence in Silicon Valley, I don't wanna take any risks. I don't wanna mess up my checks. Uh, do you think that there's a, a connection between those two in terms of the risk aversion? Yeah, I mean, you just clearly stated that there's a risk aversion. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think they're, do you think they're con connected in, in terms of the endowment returns at HBCUs are most likely, you know, underperforming a lot of other universities due to the extreme risk aversion. Now, the executives and the black people of influence in Silicon Valley, they are very risk averse. They don't want to mess up their checks. They don't want to be blacklisted. So the ret let's call it the diversity returns or the economic empowerment returns could be less because there's too much concentration in shutting up and dribbling. We're not taking enough risk in terms of being vocal. Again, I, I don't know enough about HBCU um, endowments to have an informed opinion on what they're doing wrong. Would I like to see, um, you know, would I like to get a check from an HBCU endowment? Sure. Invest in our fund. It will, will make, will you know, help make some money. But I, I can't say that. I can't sit here and equivocally say, or um, unequivocally say, that they're failing or they're not doing as well as another endowment because their exposure to private equity is less. Let I don't know that. Yeah, let me frame it uh, a better way. Black people specifically, we would get better economic returns in terms of our relationship with Silicon Valley if there was less shutting up and dribbling and more taking of risks, particularly with people close to power, close to influence, having influence, is that things are going slower because too many of us who are kind of close to the system are connected to the system, too many of us are shutting up and dribbling. True, some people you know, hey, it's okay to shut up and dribble, but there's too much concentration on that. And who's shutting up and dribbling that, that, that you're thinking about? Who's, who's an example? Let me give you an example of someone shutting up and dribbling. Mm -hmm. The VP of Apple. This sister was uh, recently, uh, I assume she was terminated. She was separated from Apple recently where 
you know, she talked about diversity is all about cognitive diversity. There could be a room of 12 white men and that could still be diverse. I believe her name is Maxine Williams at Facebook, another black woman. She's, she's come out and says, hey, you know, there's a video of her saying, we're all about cognitive diversity. It pretty much saying the same thing uh, as the Apple VP. It looks like the Apple VP didn't really know her role was most likely uh, heavily weighted towards PR. I believe that those black women are shutting up and dribbling. They're there for, uh, uh, it looks like mostly PR. They're not there to kind of shake things up. Colin Powell was um, an adversary of um, affirmative action. Was he shutting up and dribbling? Colin Powell, he has spoken up within the Republican Party. They don't, you know, over time, uh, they have disliked him more than more, but for sure, uh, I think, you know, in the 80s, for the most part, 90s, definitely Colin Powell would be shutting up and dribbling. I would put him in that bucket. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Google is, is, is backing your fund. Have you ever talked to David Drummond? Yeah. And would you say that this is definitely someone who, you know, he's behind the scenes. You may have not hear anything, but he's definitely not shutting up and dribbling in terms of his activism and, and pushing kind of the movement forward. I think David was instrumental in our fund getting getting um, the investment dollars that we got from Alphabet for sure. Okay, that's um, yeah, that's good. I theory. think he's very instrumental in Plexo Capital roll, um, you know, rolling out of um, of Alphabet to do more of this. So he's yeah, I, I think he's someone that's um, leveraging um, his position and his influence to, to to make a difference. I also think that it's it's. Um, it's almost irresponsible to judge someone off of a bad day or a comment unless we, you know, know the totality of, of what they're doing. I have no idea what this um, chief of diversity, I don't know what her name is, at, um, at Facebook is doing. Um, but there could be a lot of actions that are, that are um, you know, taking place that we're not privy to. Um, would I... Would I have liked to uh, her to say ethnic, gender, um, racial, cognitive, interests, thoughts, education, all these things, um, diversity of all these things are important? Yeah, that would have been, that would have been much better. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and crucify her for, um, for not saying that when I, don't, I have no idea what else she's doing. Do you believe that a room could have... 12 white men and still be considered diverse in terms of how you how you define that word it can be diverse in some ways is it the type of diversity that i would prefer to see no would you ever call a room like that diverse optically it's not but but in other ways it might be but that wouldn't be my definition of of diversity what would be your definition my definition of diversity is race gender thought and experiences. All right, you heard it from Marlon Nichols from Cross Culture Ventures. Thanks everybody for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamarlin Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at mogledom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.